ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. In the 19th century novel Oliver Twist, the hero undergoes a series of trials and tribulations. Young Oliver faces threats at every turn, but his spirit is pure, his friends are loyal, and eventually justice wins out and Oliver Twist finds safety and success. My guest today shares a name with the hero of Charles Dickens' novel, and his life has been even more full of danger and redemption. This Oliver Twist was born by a lake in Rwanda. He spent much of his life in a giant refugee camp in Malawi, and after finally making it safely to Australia, was stopped by Queensland police on the very first day in his new home. Oliver has turned it all into a one-person stage show and now a memoir called Charlie. Hi, Oliver. Hi. Let's start with your name. When did you take on this moniker, Oliver Twist? When I was, when I was young, in high school, um, younger, <laughs> um, there was a song that came out by a Nigerian artist called Oliver Twist. That was the song, not the artist. The, the artist was named Dibanji and... It was the first time I heard those two names merged together and I thought, oh, this is this sounds cool. And everyone started calling me that uh, going around town. And eventually I just adopted it. And when I moved to Australia and was considering last names or what it meant to start a new life at the very least, not that anyone really needs to change their name when they move to a new place, Twist came to mind because it is a name people adopted in the Victorian era when they moved from their home to a new place to start a new life, to start fresh. So it's not the name that your parents gave you. Tell me about them. How did they meet one another? What story do you know? It is not the name that my parents gave me. I don't don't know how they met. And I refrain from asking them how they met because I felt it was too much for me to pry. I felt it would open odd wounds, given the history of what brought me here. Your parents were getting together at at just the time that Rwanda was being torn apart by violence, when Hutu extremists murdered nearly one million Tutsis. What did this genocide mean for your mum and dad? Uh, Thank you for that question. It's a strange question, but very powerful. In my mind, genocide should not have any meaning. Um, But it does, at least in this context, define and start a very dangerous relationship because there were two people from two different ethnicities, two different tribes, and the getting together was a deadly affair in a very Shakespearean, feudal, fatal decision truly and I remember uh, exploring literature and theatre in high school and that Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet kind of deadly beyond the love affair, beyond the interest that the chemistry and love that could existed between them. You have families and you have political history that doesn't want this union to get together. So it was dangerous for them Um at least in my understanding, to be together around that time because it was a civil war of two conflicting ideas and cultures. Your father was Hutu and your mother Tutsi and they needed to flee Rwanda when violence broke out. What could they take with them? Not very much. In in a fleeing situation, you you don't have so much to take with you, I suppose. It was me and my sister and the two of them. We were making our way out of Rwanda without knowing where the final destination would be. It was very much just place to place, safe to safety. You were still very little when they began this journey to seek asylum. What's your earliest memory? My earliest memories were um, very innocent, very untainted, 
without understanding because when you are at that age, it is rather difficult to understand the enormity of conflict and what it does. War makes statistics out of an experience. And when you're young, you just tend to live and be in that experience. So it never occurred to me that the 1994 genocide or the mass atrocity of the 1950s and the 60s in Rwanda was what propelled us to end up in Tanzania in transit or in Malawi seeking refuge. So I was enjoying my new area without understanding what it was, this environment. When I think back to a younger Oliver, there's a lot of (laughs) laughter, a lot of playing outside. I was outside a lot, a lot of friends. And only later on did I start to understand what it is that we fled. Tell me about when, when your family made this stop in Tanzania and Dar es Salaam, who was the great friend you made as, as a young boy there? I met a friend called Musa and his father was huge. I remember his father being a giant and also maybe because I was young and everything looked bigger to me then, but I, I thought, oh my goodness, me and Musa, we are, you know, we are those two people. We are Thelma and Louise. We are going <laughs> to go and conquer the world. We're just going to get in our convertible and <laughs> drive wherever we need to go. And um, it was such an exciting time because he didn't know where I was coming from. I didn't know where he was coming from. It was just a meeting of just two people and getting into all sorts of troubles, trying to ride well, motorcycles. Well, I was going to say, it wasn't a convertible that you got into, but a motorcycle. What happened yes, in that it was, escapade? it was a motorcycle. And what, <laughs> one of the adventures we we're trying to do is we we're trying to um, steal this motorcycle, which was way bigger than we were. There was no way this was going to work. But we had devised, mainly on my part, because I'm... Uh, quite good at planning, I suppose. I devised a blueprint, a plan to steal this motorcycle. Um, And I thought I could just start the ignition because the keys were there and it was our neighbours. And we just go into this alleyway where it was parked and I hopped on top of it and quite quickly realised how heavy and how ill-advised and probably stupid this plan was because it was not going to work. There was no way we were about to, you know, go outside our compound with this motorcycle. So I fell and I and I have this long-lasting scar of that mishap that happened. So did that put a dampener on your and Musa's adventuring spirit? Oh, absolutely that? not. But I was... <laughs> Our parents, both our parents, which had this very um, union of parenting, you know, if you, if you live in those kind of big projects or big compound houses, everyone looks after each other. You know, the parents are like, no, you look after my children um, and I look after your children. So both of them had got together and realized that the two of us is a ticking time bomb. <laughs> and so we were grounded after that. We did get into more adventures after that, but... You survived to tell the tale. Yes. you had to say goodbye to that dear friend and not really be able to tell him where you were going because it was a mystery to you. Where was the next stop after leaving Tanzania? It was Malawi, which is a country in Central East Africa. There is an English translation of Malawi. It means flames. It's like a country on flames. When they got back their independence from British, I believe, or the French, either one of those. Um, those two were very heavily involved. <laughs> but I think it was the British, and it's a beautiful country. And I, I love the time that I spent there, despite it being very tumultuous, very heartbreaking in parts. But it formed me who I am. We were first settled in Zaleka refugee camp which is a camp that still exists today. Initially, it was not meant to occupy more than 10,000 people. It was like many camps at the time in the 90s built for the civil conflicts that were happening around Central Africa, Congo, Rwanda, Uganda. 
so it was apt that when we arrived there, there were lots of Rwandans, and that was nice in and of itself, um, at least for my parents. But it eventually became a survival of the fittest to be there and stay there and make sure that we are sustaining ourselves. So your family, your mum and dad and you and, and your, your younger sister Angel arrive in this Zalika camp. Yes. Where did you find to live? What, what was your home like? We first lived at my father's friend's house, very small house, all kind of built out of these mud bricks. If you can imagine a hut. But a lot of people a lot of people can imagine it from outside what it looks like, but inside, so if you were to structure the roof, you'd have to put a plastic on top of it. So when it rains, the water goes through the grass but not through the plastic itself. And a lot of the houses were like that. And you get given a registration card um, that has your address and your unique code so you can claim food from Wild Food Program or health services from UNICEF um, and things like that. So how much of your your day-to-day was spent in lines then, Oliver? A lot of time. A lot of time was spent in lines that I devised a plan for cutting the line, which, okay, if you come to Western countries, they think there is such civilized nature in our blood that you should not cut the line. But, you know, I've been raised on a different kind of, you know, understanding where if you can manage to uh, think your way around and be clever around some things, you can really get around to it. Can you reveal your secret for cutting lines? I can. It, It involves one person dramatically with full theatrics faking a faint so it attracts everybody's attention and you can sort of make your way around. You know, very, very much so a plan for conniving thieves. <laughs> <laughs> With a limited limited time, number of times you can pull that stunt of off. Of course, because yeah, initially they'll be like, oh, it. they'll feel sorry. For, they have that empathy. And then the second time they're like, you did this yeah, last I, time. I, I saw you with the food line. Yeah, yeah. you're just changing outfits now. <laughs> it's just the same person. And, you know, these life goes on wherever people are together, society forms, economics, politics, religion. It's it's whatever structure people are living in. And and of course your family had to try to find ways to make money. What did your dad what did your dad start doing to bring in some money? My father was um a good businessman, a good man in general at times. And he cared for supporting us and supporting himself. And he started a little kiosk. And it's one of those little shops where you find children lurking and running around in the background where you pop in your head. You can find it in specific suburbs, you know, in like very inland suburbia, when you pop in your head, you're like, "What? where's their dot in this place? <laughs> it always seems like it's a house instead of <laughs> a place of business. But that's what it was. It was a way to make money, but also have a roof and be able to sleep at a place. So in years to come, it was also my understanding that he ran a few of this business before he left Rwanda. It was not unusual. A lot of people were doing that. You know, it it didn't need much. It was a very lucrative business for a lot of people because even if we didn't speak the language, which we didn't, you know, a customer can just walk in and be like, I want that. And then you can be like, oh, give me money. It's a very easy exchange. And that proved to support us for a long time. How important was church inside the camp? Religion not just church, but mosques, Islam and Christianity, were a place of comfort. And I saw people congregating before they could really, you know, people would go (laughs) to the church to pray before they could go to a bank to ask for a loan. If anything, they would go to pray for that loan to go well. 
that kind of faith is what, you know, French existentialists would have called blind faith or bad faith or bad religion. And I, I have grown out of it. So it's difficult for me to describe to you right now what it was like. But there were these majestic buildings and, I, and, and every Sunday, at least for Christians, we would go to this Pentecostal church and these pastors would preach prosperity gospel, would preach hopeful gospel that one day we'll be out of these places, that one day if we are good, if we are good under God, that we will actually leave this place. So it felt at least for me as a child so impressionable that it had so much dependence on God and nothing else in me to leave the situation that we were in. It felt oppressive in the way we practice it. And we did it for years and years. And I, while I don't have that faith anymore, or rather bad faith anymore, I saw it as a place of comfort and we treated it as such in the camp. How did your parents talk to you about the future? Do you remember? Was it something they, they talked they about? They didn't. And that's the, the very strange thing. When you are in that situation, you're preoccupied with survival first and foremost. You leave the future to God, politicians that make very empty promises, perhaps. And it felt, for the most part, that we were endlessly just floating out of space with no direction whatsoever. And if there is... If there was and anything at all that they said, this has so much to do with your future, it was education. To be like, look, we're going to try and provide to you opportunities that were not afforded to us. And that that's a future in and of itself. If you can just see two steps ahead, then that's good, which is what we were focused on. Not five years from now, not 10 years from now, but perhaps tomorrow. Soon after your family arrived in the camp, your baby sister was born. Tell me about Bonita and how her arrival changed life. Bonnie is lovely. She is wonderful. And she was born with Down syndrome. It has proved very difficult for her and my family to just look after her. It meant that she will have a difficult life. Um, but she was always playful. She reminded me a lot of my time in Tanzania with Musa, these kind of adventures. She would just take off and start running like outside our compounds. And we used to always just chase her. And and that was like lovely when she started doing that because for the longest time she needed physiotherapy. She could not properly carry herself from place to place. And we found eventually that when she started doing that, she really just loved it. She was like, no, I'm going to run. <laughs> You're not going to catch me. This is a race now. And <laughs> that was exciting, but at times also very threatening because as she as she got older, she needed a lot of looking after, which is a lot of what my mother carried. After the, the birth of Benita, your family ended up moving to the city. How were... Asylum seekers like you seen by some of the locals, how did you feel you fit in that society? I, I refrain from speaking in a, in a univocal tone that makes me feel like I can speak for asylum seekers. But I should say, as from my own lived experience, it was so difficult. It still is so very difficult for a lot of people. And that's the univocal part of that statement. I mean, how do I explain just showing up to someone and asking more than you would normally? It's a very difficult situation to be in because not only are you asking for help, but you're asking for continual help. Because if you have reached that point, if you have fled, you are in so many versions and so many things that you might need, not just financial aid. You might need someone to look after you, to help you 
reintegrate into society, to learn a new language, to be able to communicate your torments, if there are any. And they did not want any part of that. The locals did not want any part of that. And Malawi was and still is in a very bad economical shape. So the arrival of these so many asylum seekers proved that they wanted a new infrastructure financially and economy and the jobs that would go to them proved to the locals that they were being stolen away from them and they needed that living. And it proved very difficult to coexist among them. In, in fact, it was frowned upon and discouraged to uproot your life out of Zaleka refugee camp because that was safe for us and everyone else around there. As asylum seekers, it was safe to be in the camp than out of the camp. What happened early one morning, Oliver, when you were 11? All of a sudden, I hear voices, like these very loud voices. And and I wake up and, and I'm looking around and there's so many people around. But more than people, there are rifles pointed around. And... It was a scenario of, oh, no, we need to go, you know, if if not to the afterlife, but somewhere else. It was a very deadly situation to be in. How did you get out of that? How did your, your parents I didn't feel like I was going to get out of that. Um, we had left the camp and now we were in the city. Why were we in the city? Did we have documentation? Do we have an exemption? Otherwise... The soldiers were insisting that we leave and we go back to where we came from, either the camp or Rwanda. Both the places were not safe, by the way. And my father presented to them a document that proved that we could be there on the account that Bonnie, my younger sister, needed to stay there to see a physiotherapist, which is an exemption we acquired from UN when we were in the camp. And that was what was questioned. We had to prove is that we had the legitimacy of being there. And it is ridiculous that war conflict makes that of humanity, that you have to prove your legitimacy. We all showed up on this planet not knowing really where we came from. There is no one document or paperwork or explanation or paragraph or poem that could ever really describe why you are here, but that was what was asked of us. You mentioned that your your dad was making money for the family by running a kiosk. And some mornings you'd accompany him on, on drives out to the countryside. What were they like? <laughs> they were they were fun. I remember enjoying them. I would wake up way early in the morning, way earlier than I cared to. Um, and, you know, he, he was very much so uh, big on working hard. And I have inherited that diligence that he had. We'd wake up early. We had this pickup truck, this cream Nissan pickup truck. And we would drive through the dusty areas, the dusty roads of Chinsapo, where we were living at the time, into like these rural villages where farmers had harvested nuts and all sorts of fresh products that would buy and resell them at the kiosk. And it was one of the few times that I got to hang out with my father and really enjoyed it. The company, his company, was a man of few words. He didn't say much during the trip, but I observed and I enjoyed that part of it. I could see him in his pensiveness, in his joyful, in his negotiations. You know, all of that was very exciting to me and in a way by osmosis I was I was learning I was like a sponge soaking in everything around him you described him earlier as a good man but he could be really hard on you when you think back about the way your dad could be it's impossible to know I guess but do you think his violence was partly a reflection of of the stress under which you were all living or how have you Come to come to see it as an adult. It's difficult to be in anyone's shoe. 
it's thrown around a lot. Like, oh, take a walk in my streets. It's impossible if you were in someone's mind or body for longer than 30 seconds, you would go mad at what goes through their lens, what you see through their eyes. It's it's impossible. So I, I spent a lot of time trying to think and feel how he would have felt in that moment. And I, I couldn't possibly justify it. And for my own peace of mind, I refrained from trying to understand a lot of that because that would minimize who I am and who I was in those moments and experiences. But he was going through a lot of difficulty. He was trying to make a living and sustain a life, not only for him and his wife, but for children. And how do you do that in a nation that you don't have a lot of infrastructure for yourself? That would have contributed to how hard he was on me, like really hard on himself possibly, but mainly on me and my mother. And and he later became calm, but it was a continual toughness that he showed in our time in Malawi. Broadcast and online. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. As you became a teenager, Oliver, what was the most common sources of conflict between you and and your mum and dad? Oh, my mother will quickly point out that I was a huge kleptomaniac, like massive. But, you know, I I say that to say I was having fun doing that. Like if if I needed to do something, okay, so if life was going to stay constant and we're going to stay in Malawi forever, I, I was prepared to have fun while I was there. So to me, I needed, you know, some resources and money to go hang out with friends. And I, I would very often <laughs> go into like his pockets and steal a little bit of cash. And this drove him mad. And it would it would have drove him mad extensively on the large financial stress that he would have been at. So it was warranted some scoldings that I did get. Um But there was also a paranoia that was added to that where if there was a discrepancy in his finances, he would immediately just assume (laughs) that I had something to do with it, which is not the case. But a a constant struggle was a misunderstanding that can often arise from children and parents of like... um, not absorbing other responsibility, not being um, wise enough, not being smart enough, not being mature enough already. And it's something only time teaches you. Not even your parents can. What did your mum think about your growing interest in girls as a teenager? Oh, she became very suspicious of it. She's, I mean, she's only been with my father as far as I know. And... If I had any interest in more than two people within a year, it was bewildering to her. And it was more than that, obviously, throughout my teenage years because I was so adventurous. And she was always like, oh, no, she's not the right person for you. This It wasn't like I was like, oh, no, I'm going to marry her. It was like, no, no, even hanging out with someone, she was very strict and very like, no, please. Your dad became ill and and passed away when he was still really a relatively young man. And that meant that your mum had to move back with with you and your, your sisters into the refugee camp. How do you remember that feeling, like to be going back to the camp? I was 16. I felt like we we had failed. There was a shame to it a little bit. I felt like I was abandoning everything I had worked for, mainly friends. And this was on my part. 
selfish perhaps, but I had cultivated a life with friends and a sense, sense of education. And that feeling quickly went away when I felt the pressures of being the man of the house now. I'm the only male child of the four. And I was propelled into this role that my father was never thrilled to occupy in the first place. So I didn't want any part of it. I really rebelled against it through my mother's, through my father's friends. And it was, it was difficult. It was difficult to be back there because everything I knew had been reversed now. I just wanted to start over and figure it out. But it was difficult because we didn't have the resources. We didn't have a kiosk anymore. And we were at the mercy of UN. Um, we were always at the mercy of UN, by the way, but it felt more so this time around that we were back there and just waiting, playing the patient game as a patient stone, I suppose. And I guess life could have continued like that indefinitely. How did your mum get the news that there was another future going to be on offer for your family? When the phone call came, I was in the middle of sharing an anecdote to my family and the way enjoying it. I can be very elaborate in my descriptions of stories throughout my childhood. Elaborate lies and elaborate stories, just conjugating and conjuring words. And I was in the middle of some anecdote and she gets this one because she lives in the middle of the story. And my sisters are the only victims of my story at this point. And she's in the living room and she's listening attentively and then only saying yes yes very eagerly very enthusiastically i remember she's saying all of this in chichewa and she comes back into the room and she gives me the news that we were in fact living zaleka refugee camp in in my mind it didn't matter where we were going as long as we were living and we we were thrilled she tells us not to tell anyone in the camp, by the way, because they get very jealous and my mother can be very suspicious. And I think, if I remember correctly, she was worried that everyone was going to put poison in our food and we weren't going to live and our ticket would go to someone else, which is a very valid feeling, but she's carried that paranoia for better or worse throughout her life. Anyway, we were leaving. So we were leaving to come to Brisbane as newly resettled asylum seekers. And I was I was thrilled because we, we were coming on, on a different terms altogether. It was it was like living twice in the same life. Not many people get that opportunity, that chance. Truly the very details that are possibly not shared anywhere else, you'd have imagined like I was totally a different person. And I was. And this is not the person that I was then. And it's hard to reflect on that person, but also very joyful because I remember that news meaning something, meaning everything to me and my family. It's something I don't take lightly. That was a turning point. And you only get a few in life, those turning points. What was the, the physical journey to Australia like for you and your family? It was not easy to travel uh, by ourselves. All we had were these bags of um, International Organization for Migration, IOM. And we were just like, you know, where are we going? Where are we going? And I spoke a little bit of English, uh, but for the most part, it was just directionless. And I remember at Johannesburg Airport, we were not almost let on the plane because my mother had packed all these hair products called Super Black. It's a very popular um, African <laughs> hair product that my mother loved putting on me and my sisters. She had so many tubes of them in her purse and customs stopped us. And she really contemplated between Super Black <laughs> And a plane to freedom. <laughs> and to me, I was like, Mom, you really gonna 
take this time to decide. The plane is right there. We need to go. Leave the super black. Yeah, I'm sure you'll find a different hair product that will work for our hairs. But right now, you know, if, if, even if we're bored, I don't care. Let's just get there first. <laughs> and then we can decide what it is we want to put on our heads. Um, I wear Kangol hats for all I care. So it, it was this comical thing of just in transit. It was a bizarre 30 plus hours because I'd never been on the plane before. And all of a sudden they were like, would you like fish or chicken? I was like, what do you mean? Give me both. Um, <laughs> and it was such um, an adventure uh, in memory. And we arrived and we were given a resettlement agency. Uh, and there are a few around Brisbane and they do their very wonderful job of integrating you into the new society, giving you a place, telling you how it operates, registering you with a bank and starting the process of getting IDs and driving licenses. All of that was all new to me in a very exciting way. Our documentation just said, Brisbane is your final destination. Little did we know we were actually going to Ipswich. And we were driving from Brisbane, we were going past <laughs> Waco prisons, and, and I was like, Brisbane Correctional Center, Brisbane oh. Women's Correctional Center. And I was like... So on the highway, you're passing yeah, all of the Yeah, on the highway, we're going to all centers. these places, and I was like, where are you taking us? How, do we just leave one trap for another trap? <laughs> And our resettlement agents was like, nah, nah, this is just the area that you have been resettled in. Um, and, you know, it's it's a very <laughs> interesting place, I guess, uh, to say the least. But we arrived, lo and behold, in a suburb called Bouval in Ipswich. And um, very quiet place. And that's, that's where we were. So you arrive in a completely different world after this marathon travel that you've made, first time on a plane, everything new, everything different, and the next morning you set off just to explore this new place. What happened, Oliver? I went for a straw to just uh, look around the neighbourhood and I had, uh, I had my hoodie on, um, just like a red hoodie. I remember it being red. And I was listening to some music, just taking a straw from our street to like the main street, just to familiarize myself with the area. I remember it being clean. I was like, this is clean. The streets are clean. <laughs> I was like, who cleans this? <laughs> and the houses were majestic and, and big. And and then I noticed someone peeking through the window, like they were opening their curtains to look at us. And on that morning walk, I felt observed, like I was under surveillance or something. And Five minutes later into my walk, I hear a siren sound like <laughs> someone had called the cops on me. Did you realise that the sirens were for you? I mean, you're just walking around and you hear some police sirens. I, what I, did you think was happening? I didn't know what was happening, but they got closer and closer to me and it felt strange. I was like, well, this this is for me. And I, I was panicking because up until then... The word profiling, the word racism was not in my head. For the differences that existed in colonial times in Rwanda and Malawi, I would look at someone across from me that was supposedly from a different ethnic background and identify with them. I'm like, I see you. I don't have to describe you in a certain way. I don't have any racial bias towards you. It's not a thing that I knew before that month of July in 2014, and it was dangerous. I, I felt trapped. They pulled over in a van, one of those big vans where, you know, if need be, they can arrest you immediately and just put you inside. And um, they were interrogating me in a way, in ways that I didn't know what happened because I was like, I haven't, I haven't done anything wrong here. I, I haven't. I have nothing to show for, which is a dangerous place to be in, a very vulnerable place to be in, because here I am, someone who had just fled a very horrible situation, 
I'm in a new place expecting safety, expecting peace, and you're asking of me things I would not know. So not only do I seem suspicious to you, but I feel suspicious. So my answers are, what you're expecting? I'm nervous. You know, I'm stumbling through my answers. I don't know where I am. I don't have ID to prove to you. And look, there's a lot of that in, in the place that we were settled in. You know, there's a lot of black families and profiling. And it continued from that day on. But that initial contact was, I don't know how to describe it. I was um, disappointed. It must have added a kind of pretty bitter taste to your sense of this new home. Yes. Yes, it did. And it opened me to an investigation. (laughs) I say investigation because it had not occurred to me that I was not welcomed, which is a feeling I, I don't like. I don't like going to places where I don't feel welcomed. I'd rather not go in the first place. I've done a share of those in my life to know that I shouldn't go anywhere I'm not welcome. It's not a feeling I would recommend to anyone. So if I can avoid it, I will. If I knew that that was going to happen, I would have approached it differently. And it opened an investigation of what this nation is and what this nation is about, the history of discrimination. When you arrived here, Oliver, you had already finished high school in Malawi. So what was your first step here in terms of work or study? I was doing a lot of odd jobs. I went What's to, the oddest of the odd jobs that you did? I used to do door-to-door sales. What did you sell? I sold security. <laughs> <laughs> what, like security screens? Which is, which or? is really, no, no, like uh, security alarms which is a very dangerous job for, like, suspicious, and I say that with air quotes Mm. now, a very suspicious black boy in Ipswich, you know. How did people... That would be like, why are you selling me security? (laughs) I should be secure from you at this moment. So I, I ended up doing this job for a while in many places like Ipswich and around town on a commission based. And I did that for a while. I didn't know what I was getting into. It didn't pay a whole lot. Um, But it it presented an attitude of talking to people. And and I liked that. I did enjoy talking to people, you know, about anything at all. It, It dissolves the barrier. It dissolves the border. And I'm very interested in dissolving the border as much as I can. You know, you you can share stories and share anecdotes and, and share experiences that will make someone feel um, empathy for your situation. And I I really was insistent on embarking on that journey. And that was one of those learning experiences for me. Sharing stories is one thing, but you decided to try stand-up comedy. How did that enter your your head? I thought I could be funny and it, it proved it it proved true i I felt funny, you know, I felt this funny feeling that I wanted to share, which is why i went I went on stage. Were you nervous on that first gig? Uh, no, I feel like I'd been through a lot enough to not <laughs> be nervous about that. Gatekeepers like bookers never really scared me to be like, "No, do well now or you won't be invited again. It's like, well, you know, unless you're presenting me with a deportation document, <laughs> I, uh, it's just fine. You know, it's not the worst in the world. And I brought an attitude of bravado to the gig because I needed that to get out everything I wanted to get out. And I had a lot to share, I felt. And initially I was doing five minutes and I was like, I want to do more. I just want to share these stories. Even if they're not funny, let me just elaborate and show to you where I'm coming from. I had that goal in mind, a a vision of wanting to do long-form storytelling that reflected back to what Jali is, to what I am about and where I'm from. There's a history of oral tradition of storytelling. And Jali is a West African term that means a storyteller, a historian, a poet. And in those times, this person would be appointed by the chief. It would be the second hand man, I suppose, 
to the chief that would go from village to village to share stories, to provide information, to tell the news, to share anecdotes around the bonfire in, in hut, anywhere that they could. And there's a history of this. There's a rhythm of this, in fact, that I love so much that if you can read, you can almost hear it. You can almost dance to it. And to me, that was the end goal. That was like the final point where I could share these stories that are so rhythmic, that are so poetic. That was the initial step in. I was like tipping my toes into that <laughs> pool of landscape. But it's so different, you know, to share stories at a pub, at the New Market Hotel, like all these places that I was initially studying. It was not <laughs> how flowery and beautiful as I'm putting it and how it is now. There's more beer involved and, and more calling out from the audience. Yeah, yeah, there's... there's dealing with the demographic that is going to catch footy tomorrow and they really don't want to hear some kind of Kafka-esque description, I suppose, which I thought I had in me or just, you know, loved in literature and other forms of art. And, yeah, stand-up comedy never felt that very artful to me, so I ended up in theatre, I suppose, but... It, it can be. And the possibility itself was enough to get me on stage. <laughs> get you on stage. And then out of that, you created the show, Charlie, which has toured Australia and also been in London. How was it received there? I did uh, recently do the show in London. It was received well. It was received really lovely way. I remember someone writing about it that it was a love letter to Rwanda, and it is. For me, it was, because I did it before I ever went back to Rwanda. There's so much in that play, this monologue, this one-person show that I love that is a, a tale from an exile. There is so much one describes so positively or you know, in a very heartbreaking way, but it is a tale from exile and that can feel prophetic and, and that might feel grandiose a little bit, but it is what I was wanting to share, a love story to a nation that I once belonged to in a very real way. Last year, you did go back to Rwanda the first time since your family had fled was it like you imagined it would be? Was it somewhere that you felt that you did belong? Yes, yes. You know, I, I got my passport and then the pandemic happened and everyone was in lockdown so no one could travel. And I felt like, oh my goodness, I looked so much forward to getting this piece of document that could allow me to go back. And when I could, when I had gained the resources and time to do so, I went back. I went to Kigali. I flew into Kigali via um, Cairo in Egypt. And I was in London at the time. And it was so, so very beautiful to be back there. It is such a beautiful place. Australia is, is like relatively flat, like most of the places, even where, where I live in Sydney, is relatively flat. But Kigali, at least from what I had heard, because I don't remember a whole lot of it, is that it's very hilly. And I was staying in uh, Gisozi, which is a Kinyarwanda term for like mountain hilly places. Literally, it's named after what it actually reflects. And it was so beautiful because I could just start walking and walking downhill and see the whole city. So beautiful and so safe that any memory or anything that was written about it, I could just ignore and look at a nation that has bounced back from a very terrible situation. So I was delighted to be there. It felt fantastical in all ways possible to be there. And I stayed there for two weeks. It felt so short. I was writing, I was going to eat, I was meeting extended family members. And what did they make of you? I mean, they must have been so delighted for this boy that they'd said goodbye to as a baby to appear back as this young man. I know. It was surreal. I remember meeting my mother's sisters and thinking, wow, there she is, my mother, in <laughs> many 
other people, <laughs> you know what I mean? And I remember seeing myself in many other family members or just the community at large, the same features, the same lips, the same eyes, same names, you know, at least birth names. It was delightful. I was very happy to be there. And everyone was really happy to see me as well. So it was a much-needed homecoming, a much-delightful homecoming. It must have been really meaningful for your mother too to think of you in that place and for you to have made that journey, I guess, on behalf of the family, really. I think I think it was. Selfishly, I, I went there for myself and I, I, I do want my mother to go back and enjoy the beauties of what it's been. So much has moved on, but she would remember it so vividly because she spent a lot of time there. And I went to where she went to school and I went to where we were living, where she would have left, where I would have been conceived, near Lake Kivu in Changugu. All of that was possibly the most important trip I've, I've ever taken. I, I couldn't speak the language and I was meeting family. There was like these translation moments where my cousin could speak English, one of my aunties could speak English, so we were sitting there asking questions, so much to catch up with, and it was so beautiful. You know, it reminds me of a a line that I love in, in a James Baldwin book where he says, Now, although I am a stranger... I am home. And it rendered identity meaningless. And so much of being in Western society, they're like, define yourself. Tell us where you're from. And I just went back. And it, it didn't matter who I was, what I had done, my accomplishments, my failures. It just mattered that I was there. And that was truly beautiful to me. Congratulations on the book and thank you so much for sharing some of your story on Conversations. Thank you for having me. It's been very nice to talk to you. I'm happy to share these stories and I hope people enjoy them as much as I, I have. Oliver Twist's memoir is called Jolly. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Ever feel clueless during smart convos? Same here. Can't keep up with everything? Don't sweat it. We're in this together. I'm Tegan Taylor, unveiling your new curiosity quencher, Quick Smart. I'll be chatting with clever people about current topics like the ADHD boom, opting out of the law, Disney as a religion, and AI stealing our jobs. Just give me 10 minutes, once a week. I'll be quick, you'll be smarter. It's Quick Smart. Find it now on the ABC Listen app.